Now go ahead and take out your Bibles and let's open them up to Exodus 16. Exodus chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to use one of those in the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning on page 58 in those uh, pew Bibles uh, that we have there. As you're turning to Exodus 16, let me ask you this question. Uh, We started last week talking about food. We're going to start this week talking about food. What is the strangest food that you have ever eaten? What is the strangest food that you have ever eaten? Looking around online, I thought I might begin this morning by mentioning just a few strange foods that are eaten in certain parts of the world. Uh, There is haggis, for example, uh, which is eaten in Scotland. Uh, Haggis is a sheep's heart, liver, and lungs uh, minced up and mixed together and then cooked inside the animal's stomach. Yum. There is cash eaten in uh, the Middle East, in Turkey, other parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, It's basically a cow's feet and head stewed together. In Japan, uh, tuna eyeballs are considered a tasty delicacy. Uh, You've probably heard of black pudding. That's eaten all all over the world, uh, sometimes called black sausage. Um, It's congealed animal blood uh, stuffed into a sausage skin. In Iceland, they eat something called hakarl. It's the carcass of a basking shark that they've allowed to rot in a pit in the ground for a number of days. Uh, In the article I read, Anthony Bourdain called it the single worst, most disgusting, and terrible tasting thing he had ever eaten. The last one I'll mention is the cobra heart. Uh, Cobra hearts are eaten in Vietnam. Uh, The Vietnamese actually take the heart out of the snake while it is still alive, and they drop the still-beating heart into a glass along with the cobra's blood, and then they gulp it while it's still pumping. This is to help you not be hungry for a while. See, it's what we're doing here. Well, last time we looked at Exodus 16, we saw that God was providing a mysterious food, a strange food for his people as they traveled through the Sinai Desert. Uh, it was a, a flaky, wafer-like food. Uh, we're told it tasted something like honey. Uh, when the people saw it for the first time, they used the ancient word man, meaning what is it? Right? They didn't know what it was, man. Um, that's how the food got its name, uh, mana, or as we say it in the South, manna. Uh, we've already seen in this passage how manna was journey food, uh, how manna was the food that God was going to use to sustain His people as He brought them into the promised land. And since manna tasted like honey, it was kind of a foretaste of Canaan itself, uh, it, was, it was a foretaste of where they were headed, the land flowing with milk and honey. We've also seen how manna was gospel food because it pointed to the ultimate gift that God would send from heaven to rescue a perishing people, that Jesus is the ultimate manna, the bread of life sent from heaven for the good of our souls. 
And when we trust in Jesus, we find real and abundant and eternal life. Uh, God saved his people from starvation through manna. God saves his people's souls from damnation through Jesus. But now there's more to the story. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 13, and we're going to work our way through the rest of this chapter. And as we do, I'm going to use four headings to guide our thinking. So here they are for the note takers in the room. We're going to talk about daily dependence. We're going to talk about a generous gift. We're going to talk about consistent correction. And we're going to talk about a remaining reminder. There's a lot in these verses, so we're going to move briefly, briefly, quickly. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse 13, this is the Word of God, and we're going to be noting in verses 13 to 21, God teaching His people daily dependence. Verse 13, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, uh, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Mom, that is, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So, in this passage we see the principle that God is teaching his people. He wanted them to learn to rely on Him for their daily bread, their daily needs. Basically, He says to the Israelites, I am issuing each of you an omer of manna per person, but there is to be no hoarding. Remember, these are hungry people walking through a desolate land. You can imagine that some people felt the need to store up as much manna as they possibly could. I can even imagine some shrewd Israelite planning to get up before all the others in the morning and to gather as much manna as he can, only to take advantage of his neighbors by then charging them for it at an exorbitant rate. With something as valuable as food in the desert, he who had the most manna would have the most power. Uh, Greed and wickedness are in men's hearts. This was an opportunity for great evil. But God made sure that none of that succeeded. Instead, each person could only have one day's worth of manna, and any extra they took, he caused to be infested with a plague of worms. The whole nation was being taught to humble themselves, to look to God to provide what they need each new day. 
It's interesting to see how angry Moses became when the people continued to disobey God. After everything God had done for them, both in Egypt and now in providing fresh water and now in providing food, they still continue to disbelieve and to act in rebellion. And we're told in verse 20 that Moses became angry with the people. But it's more than that. Uh, There is no stronger verb in the Hebrew language to express anger or wrath. Moses in verse 20 is irate. Uh, He is frustrated with just how slow these people are to trust the God who has done so much for them. God is raining down food for them out of the heavens, and he gives the instruction, only take what you need per person, and they still take more and try and keep it for later. Moses just kind of hits his hand on his head and says, when will you learn, people, to trust your God? Well, let me ask us this morning, application. Are we trusting the God who has already done so much for us? Dear Christian, after God has saved you from hell, after He has forgiven your sins, after He has promised you heaven, given you the Bible, given you Christian fellowship, placed His Holy Spirit inside of you, opened up the phone line of prayer to you, basically given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that ultimately every single moment of human history is working for your ultimate good, do you still not trust Him with the circumstances of this day? And tomorrow, and the next day. Uh, Do you not trust God with, with the commands that He has given you? You see, the Christian life is to be a life of living in daily dependence upon God. We are to lean on Him completely and totally with each new day. In August of 1775, John Newton Uh, The pastor, the hymn writer of songs like Amazing Grace, uh, John Newton wrote a letter to a friend. And this letter has proven to be helpful to Christians ever since he wrote it. It has been passed around among Christians for centuries now. Listen to what John Newton wrote in a little portion of this letter to his friend. He says, You see, I am mindful of my promise and glad I should be able to write something that the Lord may be pleased to make a word in season. I went yesterday into the pulpit very dry and heartless. I seemed to have fixed upon a text, but when I came to the pinch, it was so shut up that I could not preach from it. In other words, he had a passage in mind that he was going to preach from in the pulpit, and he got up there, and it just wasn't happening. And so suddenly he's like, oh no, what do I do? What am I going to do? I had hardly a minute to choose, And therefore was forced to snatch at that which first came upon my mind, which proved to be 2 Timothy 1.12. And thus I set off at a venture, having no resource but the Lord's mercy and faithfulness. And indeed, what other can we wish for? Presently my subject opened, and I know not when I have been favored with more liberty." In other words, he says, I got up there, what I had prepared, it just it wasn't, it didn't seem right. He said, So I reached for the first text that came to my mind, which 2 Timothy 1.12. And he said, I just started talking, trusting on God to give me what I needed to say in that moment. And he said, God provided. And I don't know when I've seen such liberty in my preaching. He goes on, Why do I tell you this? 
only as an example of His goodness to encourage you to put your strength in Him and not to be afraid even when you feel your own weakness and insufficiency most sensibly. We are never more safe and never have more reason to expect the Lord's help than when we are most sensible that we can do nothing without Him. This was the lesson Paul learned to rejoice in his own poverty and emptiness that the power of Christ might rest upon him. Could Paul have done anything? Jesus would not have had the honor of doing it all. The way of being saved entirely by grace from first to last is contrary to our natural wills. It mortifies self, leaving it nothing to boast of. And through the remains of an unbelieving legal spirit, it often seems discouraging. When we think ourselves so utterly helpless and worthless, we are too ready to fear that the Lord will therefore reject us, whereas in truth, such a poverty of spirit is the best mark we can have of an interest in His promises and care. You hear what he's saying? It is when you realize that you can't do it that you're exactly where you ought to be. It's at that point where you realize, I cannot fulfill my callings in my own strength. That if I have to face tomorrow in my own power, I am going to make a mess of it. I have to pray and ask God to give me what I need to do this. When you are there, that's where you ought to be. Because that's when God supplies. A little bit more. How often have I longed to be an instrument of establishing you in the peace and hope of the gospel. And I have but one way of attempting it by telling you over and over of the power and the grace of Jesus. You lack nothing to make you happy except to have of the, the eyes of your understanding more fixed upon your Redeemer, more enlightened by the Holy Spirit to behold His glory. Oh, He is a suitable Savior. He has power and authority and compassion to save to the uttermost. He has given His word of promise to engage our confidence, and He is able and faithful to make good the expectations and desires He has raised in us. Put your trust in Him. Believe, as we say, through thick and thin, in defiance of all objections from within and without. For this, Abraham is recommended as a pattern to us. He overlooked all difficulties. He ventured. He hoped even against hope, a case in which to appearance was desperate because he knew that he who had promised was able to perform. Mount Hermon, John Newton was a great hymn writer, but his letters are awesome. Go online. You can read them for free. They're so encouraging. He was a simple man, and so he wrote in language that's very easy for us to understand even today. But do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Mount Hermon, you lack nothing for your happiness except to have your eyes more fixed on your Redeemer who is able to supply to you everything you need for every trial, including the ones you are facing today. In Exodus 16, God was trying to teach Israel what Israel in her hard heart would not learn, how to live each day in faith and dependence upon God to provide. Are we living that way? Second, let's read verses 22 to 26. Verses 22 to 26, and let's see the generous gift. The generous gift. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread 
two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord had commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So we have here the the gift of the Sabbath. On the day before the Sabbath, the people were to go out and gather two days' worth of manna, and on this day and this day alone, it would last. It would last, it would not stink, it would not gather worms. Basically, God is giving the people a day off from collecting this food. He wants them to spend this day in in their tents with their families, resting their bodies, worshiping their God. He even calls it a day of solemn rest. Mount Hermon, the Sabbath was not simply a command given to Israel in the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. The Sabbath came before Mount Sinai. The Sabbath came before the covenant that God made with Moses and Israel. God already alluded to the Sabbath when speaking to Moses uh, back in verse 5 of this chapter. And when we go back to Genesis, we find Abraham having received commands and decrees from God. There was law before the Mosaic law. There was law from God before God gave the Ten Commandments. Abraham was given instructions concerning worship and how to honor his God. And when we think about the Sabbath, that law goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation in which God instituted the Sabbath for all humanity. It appears that the faithful knew of the Sabbath ordinance and gave to to God one day of their seven But in Egypt, Abraham's descendants appear to have lost this knowledge. Israel began to go in the way of the Egyptians. They were conforming their lives to the Egyptians. And so now, having rescued his people out of Egypt, God is reestablishing for them the Sabbath. Uh, It appears that some of the faithful in Israel still remembered it because they were already gathering two days' worth on on Friday in order to have enough for the next day. And then Moses tells the elders, it's okay, they're doing the right thing. And honoring the Sabbath. In Ezekiel, we read that God gave his people in the wilderness the Sabbath as a sign of their relationship to him. Uh, The rest of the world still had a a remnant of knowledge about the Sabbath. Even today, the seven-day week permeates almost every culture on planet Earth. But it was God's people Israel who were given the renewed command to embrace the Sabbath As a day of solemn rest. They were called to keep the Sabbath as a sign of their relationship with God. Ezekiel said that this marked Israel as God's people. Today, many Christians seek to interpret the Scriptures in a way that would nullify the Sabbath. That would take it away. But you cannot nullify a creation ordinance. The Sabbath was not just given to Israel. The Sabbath was given to Adam, Hadam, man, to mankind. 
God gave man the great command to have dominion over all the earth. And then in relation to that command for man to have dominion over all the earth, God established three creation ordinances with three creation institutions. There was the command to multiply and fill the earth. That's the ordinance. Multiply and fill the earth. And God created the institution of the family to properly serve that endeavor. Multiply and fill the earth, I give you the family. God commanded man to work the earth, to till the garden. Uh, For six days, they were to work hard in taking dominion over the earth. And God gave the pattern of the six days of work. That was his institution. But then God also commanded at creation for man to take a day to rest, to fellowship with God, to find rest for body and soul. And for that, God instituted the Sabbath. Jesus himself is our example He kept the Sabbath faithfully. He taught much about the proper way to observe the Sabbath, which is weird if it was for his plan, if it was his plan for it to disappear. It's amazing how much of the Gospels are Jesus helping us rightly understand how to keep the Sabbath. And you wouldn't think Jesus would spend so much time on that subject if the Sabbath wasn't going to be for for his people. In reality, faithfully keeping the Sabbath as a holy day is to be as much a sign of our relationship with God as it was for Israel in Exodus 16. And frankly, there are few things that we can do that make us more different from our culture and that make us stand out more obviously as people of God than this. Now, the Sabbath is to be a gift to us, not a burden. In verse 29, Moses tells Israel, God has given you the Sabbath. Not God has ordered you the Sabbath. (laughs) Not God has placed upon you the burden. of No, it's God has given you the Sabbath. It is a gift for their good. As Jesus will say in the Gospels, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Isaiah 58 says this, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, And call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." God promised blessing. By the way, this is Isaiah 58, where God is looking towards his new covenant people. He's prophesying about us, our day, and he's saying that if we will honor the Lord's day, God will bless us. I sincerely believe that every generation of Christians has their blind spots, and it simply would not surprise me if a few generations of Christians from now will look back and wonder why we in our day were so flippant and unprincipled about something that the Bible is both so clear on and about something in which God has promised to bless so much. Uh, After all that God has done for us, do we trust Him enough to take His word about this issue of keeping the Sabbath? And will we align our lives and our lifestyles accordingly? We'll talk much more about that when we get to the Ten Commandments. So third, see in our passage consistent correction. Israel just continues to rebel over and over, and God continues to respond with needed 
correction. So look with me at verses 27 through 30. Verses 27 through 30. On the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, some people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. It's as if the people didn't believe God when he said they needed to store up two days' worth of manna on the sixth day because there would be none on the seventh day. And so here are people, people of God, who go outside of their tents on the morning of the seventh day and we're ready to harvest manna. Where is it? And so God comes again and he speaks correction once more. Uh, These people seem so slow to learn. They're adjusting to this new pattern that God has revealed for their lives. This is probably a bad illustration, but in some ways, as I read through the book of Exodus and see how God is relating to Israel, it makes me think about training a puppy, right? Uh, Only through consistent correction will the puppy learn what is acceptable and what is not. And the puppy is learning as it keeps trying to do things it shouldn't do. And even though you've told the puppy three times, it keeps trying to do this. No, no. And God just keeps having to come back through Moses with his displeasure saying, no, bad Israel, right? Not, not, this is not how I'm calling you to be. Probably a better illustration is that of a father. That is how God presents himself to us. Uh, he is not surprised at Israel's slowness to believe or obey. But he does show how foolish it is for them to continue to buck against him to their own harm. I almost picture a father holding his child at arm's length while the child just punches at the air. When will Israel tire themselves out of disobeying and rebelling and not believing? When will Israel come to the place of being ready to surrender, to submit, and to trust. God, like every good parent, is seeking to conquer the will of his child, Israel. Remember, earlier in Exodus, God called Israel his son. Uh, This nation, Israel, is his child, and for their welfare, he must teach them to submit their will to his will as their father. Uh, This is one of the most needed words of counsel in our day for parents. We have made idols of our children and refused to demand that they submit their wills to ours. And in doing so, we've only done our kids harm. We think so much about giving our kids a good education and helping them gain knowledge. But even that work will be all the more beneficial if we first taught our kids to submit their wills to ours. Uh, As Susanna Wesley, mother of John and Charles Wesley, mother of 17 other children, once said, The sooner the better, for by neglecting timely correction, children will contract a stubbornness and obstinacy which is hardly ever after conquered. Uh, Frankly, people in our day think that you're being cruel when you demand obedience from your children and refuse to submit you to their wishes. 
But in actuality, it is giving in to your kids and not being consistent in enforcing your rules that is cruel and harmful to them. God gives us the model of how to be a faithful father in his interaction with unruly Israel. Um, If he were to give in to them, what would he be doing? He would be setting them up for a a lifetime of (laughs) self-entitlement if we don't uh, be consistent in the rules that we give our kids and holding them accountable. We are setting them up for a life of being useless to God and others. Think of all the good that your children or your grandchildren can do if they have learned to have a gentle spirit that submits to others and is willing to learn from them. Think about the kind of love they will be able to offer to others when they do not insist on their own way. Consistent correction helps our children learn to submit their wills, not to insist on their own way. It teaches them how to love, how to put others before themselves. Susanna Wesley said, As self-will is the root of all sin and misery, so whatever cherishes this in children ensures their after-wretchedness and irreligion. But whatever checks and mortifies it promotes their future happiness and piety. In other words, selfish pride is the enemy of your child. And anything that would feed the selfish pride of your child, anything that would build it up, is only setting your child on a path to misery. But whatever humbles the child and teaches the child to learn submissive obedience works for their own future happiness. Parents, grandparents, To the degree that your children and grandchildren have learned submissive obedience to you, they will be able to live in submissive obedience to God when they are adults. You are training them for their walk with God, their ultimate Father. And so are we being faithful in imitating God's example here and giving our children and grandchildren loving but firm, consistent correction? It's what they need for their good. Well, finally, we see in our passage a remaining reminder. A remaining reminder. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna, or manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the, and as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Now the people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. So Moses is helping us in these verses. Uh, in Exodus 16, the tabernacle doesn't even exist yet. Uh, the testimony refers to the two tablets of the Ten Commandments written on by the very finger of God. That doesn't yet exist. But Moses is writing this account years later when those things do exist. And he's telling us uh, about what he commanded towards Aaron. 
Uh, the tablets of the Ten Commandments were kept in a special box. That special box was called the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark of the Covenant was kept in a special room. That special room was called the Holy of Holies, right? Well, Moses tells us that an omer of manna, one person's one-day portion of manna, was to, was to be kept in a jar in the Ark of the Covenant. Why? For future generations. As a reminder to the people of Israel centuries later about what God did in providing miracle food to His people every day for 40 years. And that omer of manna that was kept in that jar inside the Ark of the Covenant, centuries, no worms, <laughs> right? No stink. God preserved it. He was preserving the manna as a memento for Israel. So you can picture a father with his children gathered around them, around him. And the father begins to tell his children about that special box in that special room where God's special presence is said to dwell. And the kids would ask, you know, Dad, what's, what's in that special box? Well, there's, there's the two tablets with the ten words from God, the ten commandments given to Israel by God. The father would tell his kids about the original tablets and how Moses brought them down the mountain and how he saw the people of God worshiping a golden calf and how he smashed those tablets and how he had to go back up to God and receive the second set of tablets and how they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And they would say, Dad, Dad, what else is in the Ark of the Covenant? And he would tell them about the rod of Aaron. For the rod of Aaron was also in that special box. Uh, the people of Israel were grumbling because Aaron and the tribe of Levi got to be the priestly tribe. They got to be the tribe that served the Lord at the tabernacle and the temple. Many people thought Moses was just showing favoritism towards his family. And so God had each of the 12 tribes bring forward a rod. And each of the 12 rods had the name of the head father of each tribe written on it. And Aaron's name was written on the rod representing Levi, the tribe of Levi. They took the 12 rods, they put them in that most holy place, in that sacred room. And then when they were retrieved, the rod of Aaron had budded and produced a blossom. And that rod was to be kept in the Holy of Holies as a reminder to those who would rebel against what God had instituted. And then the kids would say, Dad, Dad, is there anything else in the Ark of the Covenant? And he would get to tell his kids about that jar of manna. Now, the people of Israel were sure to starve in the desert, but no, for 40 years, six days a week, God met their daily needs with miracle food rained down from the sky. It is a reminder that God gives daily grace to His people, that He supplies all their needs. Mount Hermon, every time we eat our meals, every time especially that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are too to be reminded that our God daily provides for us. Let us learn to submit ourselves to Him in holy, happy faith, knowing that He will care for His dear children. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.